thank you to DNVGL for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is a message from Regional Manager Southeast Asia, Pacific and India, Christina Sanz de Santa Maria. Seafarers are the backbone of the maritime industry. Thanks to their hard work and their challenging circumstances, the global supply chain never came to a halt. It is overdue that the international community now cares for them. I believe the crew change crisis is not an isolated problem and therefore requires international collaboration. We encourage governments to step forward to help alleviate the suffering of seafarers. Where there is a will, there is a way, as demonstrated by Singapore by the early launch of a vaccination program for more than 10,000 frontline maritime workers this month. Hi, and welcome to Endless Talks. Today's episode is about shipping. More specifically, we will focus on the crew change crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we ask, with the recent mutations of the virus in the UK and South Africa, is the shipping industry prepared or will we face a crisis as bad or maybe even worse than the one in 2020? Shipping is the backbone of the world trade, carrying around 90% of the goods. On any given day, you will find 1 million seafarers working on board 60,000 large vessels worldwide. Of course, these seafarers, they need to get onto boats and off boats. And normally, these crew changes are logistically seamless operations. But when the pandemic struck, they become almost impossible due to the risk of spreading the virus. As a consequence, hundreds and thousands of seafarers were stuck on the boats for months and months after their contracts had expired. The International Maritime Organization, IMO, which is UN's body for safety and security at sea, has labeled this a humanitarian, safety and economic crisis. Now, during 2020, the industry actually found ways and solutions to diminish the problem. However, with the recent mutations of the virus, the question has again become urgent. We are gathered here today to discuss this, and with me I have Mr. Espen Paulson, President of International Chamber of Shipping, Mr. Ola Nortun, CEO at Tuma, and Mr. Marius Johansson, Vice President Commercial at Williamson Ship Agency. And my first question is to you, Espen. When the pandemic struck one year ago, was the shipping industry prepared? No, I don't think we were prepared on the, uh, certainly not for the scale of uh, what was to come, um, particularly as we were talking about a minute ago, the, the travel aspect of it. Uh, I think um, we, we compared it probably to SARS, which, which was a problem at the time in 2003 and four. but um, I don't think we foresaw the, the, the sheer scale of, of what was ahead. I mean, I check my notes and in ICS, we sent out an advisory bulletin at the end of February uh, 2020 uh, with, with various sort of pieces of advice of, you know, to take care and, and that type of thing. But we, although we were reasonably early out with it and for, foresaw that there would be a problem, we did not foresee the scale of it. Ulla, 
you know, uh, the echo to, to what Espen is, is uh, praying. I think the initial part where we kind of, yeah, we see something happening. Uh, we didn't get the scale right, or could you kind of imagine the scale is going to take? The other part, I think, also that initially kind of, what was an infectious disease going to look like from a pandemic point of view? You know, did we, did we assess that rightly? No, I don't think we did. Actually, kind of when we, we, we talked about having, you know, how, how safe are the vessels, how safe is it to travel, how, 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 what's the spread of the infection at that time. I think we misjudged the, the, that part as well. And were we prepared to a certain aspect? Yes. Have we learned a lot? Absolutely. Is there more to learn? I'm sure. So what have you learned? We have learned, maybe kind of the, um, that the, I think, you know, let me start, you know, the learning is the, how the different nations have reacted to it, you know, closing borders, looking inwards. It's not something you can sit around a table and say, okay, this is how we're all going to do it. Because each country has different challenges, different, different borders, different ways to look at things, kind of different uh, circumstances where they need to take care of keeping some of the economy going, not can afford more close than others. All that has made it kind of uh, kind of no one size fit all. So you need to be uh, agile and adaptable to the circumstances as they evolve. And I think that's the, the agility and that having the finger on the pulse, what is happening where, and the rapidness of the changes that we've seen, closing a border, opening a border, can the crew change, can not the crew change, travel, no travel, all that, and kind of be on that ball all the time. Don't, don't lose it. You lose any sight of the circumstances because they're changing. Kind of, you know, even today, I'm sure that kind of when I go back to the office, I will have someone say, "You know, okay, how is now? We, we can't do crew changes here, we can't do this, and we can't do that." I'm sure that it comes up, and you know, Williams has a fantastic map to look at to, to oversee and kind of we, so we can have a gauging as I saw for looking at the, the the overall picture. But it's all down to the locals. And you know, and, and then so how is this this made in different um, in different um, within different countries? You know, how is the the health authorities? What kind of power do they have to close down? You know, can a port authority say I don't want anyone in? While in other places that doesn't go. You know, so you, so you have this kind of effect of how each the fabric of each country actually is made. It tells you what you can do or not do. Marius, uh, he was saying uh, both being on the ball, and he was uh, referring to Williamson and. Uh, you turned around quite quickly when the pandemic struck, right? And was quite innovative in many aspects. Can you tell us a little about what you what you did? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, um, if we were proactive or not, I don't know. Uh, we might also have been a little bit lucky there. But uh, but I think we, we are fortunate in the sense that we have uh, people uh, on ground in a lot of different countries and I think Espen is uh, sorry Ola is touching upon something very important that in, we, there's been a lot of talk about sort of a global world over the last few decades and I think what this has shown more than anything is that still countries are sovereign uh, and they will do what is sort of most fit for their citizens uh, in, in sort of view of what they believe is the right thing to do and I think um for for us, then I think with the, with the sort of lack of ability to travel, having access to people on the ground, our own staff that can sort of help find information, understand how regulations are impacting uh, both the society at large, but also for us uh, the industry, the restrictions related to crew change and so on. Uh, of course, it's been a tremendous asset, and and I think we I think Espen also mentioned their bulletin back in February, and I think we 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 started hearing. 
about how this was impacting crew changes in China in particular back in January. Uh, it was still a little bit early. I would say the rest of the world hadn't really woken up yet, but but we were getting increasing number of requests for information. How is this going to impact uh, our vessels? More from the cargo operations side of things. Uh, so we decided we, we should probably look at seeing if we can structure this information in a helpful way so that customers can consume it on demand. And then it wasn't more than really a month later before it, it, it exploded completely and we were facing lockdowns across uh, almost all of Asia and then increasingly also in Europe and, and then later in, in, in Americas. And I think, yeah, I, I, th- I think Olaf is, is touching upon something extremely important that it's, uh, it's, it, it has really demonstrated uh, how much of the, the local uh, decisions impact sort of the, the ability to operate uh, globally. We will we'll come back to that. We'll also come back to, to the solutions that you have, uh, the map. Uh, but Espen, can I challenge you a little on, on sort of uh, give us a little feel on the magnitude of this crisis, sort of uh, both, uh, both how the, the, that affects seafarers and supply chains, the more macro aspects. Uh, because is it fair to say that it is almost a disaster or is it uh, is it too strong a word? Can you give us a little... No, I, I think it was building towards a, a disaster uh, when the when, the, when the, the magnitude of the crisis became more, more obvious. I mean, we, we set up in ICS, we saw our role as being representative of about 80% of the world fleet, our membership being national associations, Norwegian Ship Owners Association, Danish... Singapore, etc. Our membership is association, so we deal very closely with all of them. We set up a task force right away and met, um, actually we met twice a week to begin with and then made it once a week. And, and that has been the case since, with about 50 or 60 people dialing in, including other associations, where, where we compare notes, uh, compared expertise, compared um, you, you know solutions uh, or sort solutions. And we, what we attempted to do was to lobby governments and the UN um, and the G7 and the G20 to designate seafarers as key workers. This is all outlined in the Maritime Labour Convention under the International Labour Organization based in Geneva. It's all in there. The fact of the matter is that countries simply have not obeyed and lived by the what they signed up to do. So this for sure complicated the, the problem. But what we tried to do as an association was to highlight the practicalities. The size of the problem got worse and worse and worse. And by that, I mean the duration of time seafarers had to, were forced to stay on board because of the inability to, crew, to change crew. What then happened was, and with the ship managers, the agents and everybody working very well together address was, well, you know, we have to deal with those that have been on the longest so as to shorten the time period beyond which they they are contracted to stay on board, the crew is contracted to stay on board. And that has been the single biggest success, if I can put it that way, since we, we all started working on this because I talked to several ship managers who said the percentage of people going beyond that period has reduced from 50% to 2 or 3%. So clearly, 
all these efforts by all stakeholders were beginning to, to bear fruit. And in fact, the results have been getting better and better until now, very recently, with this new UK and uh, South African strain. This is going to, in a way, put the problem backwards. But but I, I would say that I would say that the I think to me the most positive, if, if I can say if there is anything positive, is the level of cooperation that we as ICS together with whether it's BIMCO, Intercargo, Intertanko, World Shipping Council, and even um, I, I, ITF, International Trade Federation, uh, International Transport Workers Union, sorry, who represent seafarers. We have jointly, all these organizations work together, we developed a set of 12 protocols of how to best practice do crew change. These protocols we presented, having worked with all the other associations in very short time to do them, we presented them to the United Nations, uh, we presented them to G7, G20, where we were, and uh, most importantly to the IMO, International Maritime Organization, which is shipping's regulator. They in turn circulated these protocols to their 170-odd country membership, and they became the sort of the, the, the standard, you could say. And they've since been revised because it's a, a dynamic situation. So they've been revised several times. But, but this level of cooperation to tackle what is a terrible situation um, has been moderately successful, I would, I would claim. Yeah. Ulo? When you're looking at kind of the, the early days when everything was locked down, we got back on track and we started getting the cages kind of things moving. Yes, it was successful. It is still still successful in many ways. The, the, the new development with that old Christmas, opening up Christmas, I know if you look at the island, kind of they decided to open up and then total disaster or whatever. So it's so kind of you see how, how little, if you do too much of the opening up, you get a you get a, an effect and that kind of influence, influence everything. And, and the same thing here is that, okay, we get the good things, so kind of we plan, we work around every day, it's going to be need to work on every single individual. Remember, this is a whole chain of events. Huh? You plan something, you know, it's a number of people kind of, you know, going to stay so long on board and then after so many months, next one coming in, what kind of, so you have the kind of circle, so that, that, that circle is broken. There's no doubt the circle is broken. At the same time, you have a, a seafarers, like everybody else, is suspected to get infected. And if you start looking at the countries they're coming from, it has 4 or 5% or 3, 3% of the... And I, I would guess, if you're going to look around, you will have maybe 3% of the seafarer pool has got COVID. That means that the pool is shorter now. And it's not the kind of a vast pool that there's plenty of people to take from it. You need the qualification, the training, and all that. So you still have a little bit of a challenge. The protocol is there, it's all, and, and it works. No, no doubt about that. The other part of that is that when you're looking at is, is how is the different nation reacting to the seafarers? Uh, taking away kind of, I think, the, the uh, when as soon as you get any kind of medical illness, any kind of medical emergency or medical need, you see, they kind of then, then, then they step away again. So there is, yes, that we are with you to a certain point, and then we you're on your own. At least that's the feeling you get sometimes. So the protocol is that it works, and we're all working and we're all moving. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of development. Unfortunately, I think we're going to a, a worse position than we were three, four months ago because of the, the lockdowns and, and the border closing and all that. Um, but we have made progress. We have learned to live with it. You know, that's the other part. I think that's going to work. At some point in time, say, guys, this, this is not going away. You just have to learn to live with it. And then take those measures necessary. And 
seafarers is kind of the as essential work. I think that is the it is a key to it. But the other part of it is is the 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 the, um, the accepting also that they need medical help and treatment for other time. I know the society is kind of also in society in lockdown. They also you can see that in, in, in shore that some kind of treatment they don't give to their own population. So I can see it kind of from 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 that side. So it's, so it's difficult to be judged and say, oh, it should be this or it should be that, because you can see what, what each country is struggling with. And that is, you know, so, so yes, we can, we can, we need to rise up, we need to make sure we get the right things done. But I can also see there are issues in national issues within different countries that kind of makes it difficult. Yeah, Malaysia, I know it's coming on the, on the, the latest on uh, Dark Monday, but this one and the week before, locking down a little, kind of the, the, the so, so, so you can see that those kind of development, when they come, so okay, then you need to take a step, okay, what are we going to do then? How are we going to utilize? What, what is the, what is the means now to, to work around those challenges? And that, that's, so yes, it's working out. I think it's fantastic work that was done in there initially, kind of to put it forward and drive it through. Again, we are back again to that local authorities can as always supersede national bodies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and, kind of, and, and, and that's something we, we have to figure out how to work. And I can, like, sometimes I, I think the national bodies could be a little bit more forceful. But at the same time, it's the fabric of the individual nation, how they are structured. How kind of authorities do they help authorities? How kind of... Um, uh, frames that help authority, authority locally, what help versus the nationally, the, the regions or, or, or the, the country itself. So, so, so we still have to balance both. Yeah, I, I still want to get a little back to to sort of understanding what this crisis is, because at the one side is the seafarers and that they are sort of locked in, almost in a jail for for a long time and. And uh, they are unable to take care of their families in their own countries, and so there is a big human side to that. And but, but is there also, uh, um, uh, of course, an economical side for the shipping companies and uh, consequences for the supply chains? And can you describe sort of how the the trade is itself is affected by this, Marius? Well, I mean, in terms of the sort of impact on the shipping companies, I think uh, I think Olaf is probably better suited to reply to that than me, because uh, we're not just sort of a shipping company. Uh, we're the maritime services company, so we work on the shore side. But uh, um, but of course, it's it's I think it's fair to assume uh, from my perspective that the costs of operating are much higher than usual, uh, because there's just I think as Olaf is saying that the sort of that normal circle is broken. So you need to put on so much, let's metaphorically speaking, you need to put on so many band-aids around that process to make it work. Uh, and that drives costs uh, a lot. Um, uh, of course, the, the limitations on, on flights uh, drives airfare up, uh, which is a big part of the cost for, for, for crew. Uh, and then, all, of course, all the additional regulations in terms of quarantine at hotels, mandatory in some places up to 14 days if you want to take a crew on or off a vessel. Right? So... There's a lot of challenges there, um, which which I can only assume uh, drives costs a lot compared to to, to normal. Uh, and I can see on our side as well. I mean, our employees. I mean, the, the amount of work they need to put in, same as what I was experiencing on, on their side as a ship manager, is is tremendous. I mean, we're probably talking three, four, five times as much work and time being spent carrying out one crew change versus what is normal. Um, so, uh, and of course, our rates and everything, they're the same. Uh, 
Uh, so it's it's merely sort of just from a profitability point of view. Yes, of course, it's it's challenging to operate, but um, but the staff is student has been doing a tremendous job. Uh, but I think I said to Espen as well before before we started here today that I think if if there's one main takeaway from our side in in the last twelve months from for us as an organization, it's been really inspiring to see how sort of employees have stood up. Uh, and a lot of them have previously uh, faring uh, background as well, so they can easily relate to the situation. And I think how they stood up and sort of put in all those extra hours under, in many cases, pretty tough circumstances locally in the country where they live, is really inspiring. So, so I think that's been that's been huge. And I think also to build an aspect there, I think how the industry has really come together. Uh, to try to find good solutions uh, also in many cases between competitors uh, that normally wouldn't cooperate very well uh, I, th- I think it's been uh, it's been uh, quite remarkable um, and I think in many cases that has been a key success factor in getting things going I mean we, uh, we I w- I've been lucky to be involved in a couple of cases and I know there's been many more uh, but in, in our case we we were involved in setting up sort of a safe crew chain corridor between Philippines and, and Netherlands initially, then Philippines and Singapore. Uh, we've been involved in sort of setting up the operational procedure in Singapore together with the MPA and a couple of other companies. So, so how do you do it in the best possible way in the current circumstances, given the current regulations, which also changes all the time. Uh, and now recently also in, in within Australia, how can you actually do crew changes in a country where lots of ports are extremely remote and don't have international flights and you even have different regulations within the country. So and there's a lot more initiatives like this, which have taken place with different companies. And then, as I said, in many cases, competitors coming together because they have the same challenge. It's been, uh, it's been really, really positive to see. I think the, the, the flight issue is really, has been a really, really big one because, as you know, flights have been uh, reduced. I mean, Singapore Airlines cut at 1.90% of their flights. So... Owners and managers have had to turn to charters, and charters, by definition, are at, at very least double the cost, and probably a lot more. And so, the logistics of that chartering a plane and then trying to fill it up with perhaps coordinate with another owner, another manager, the you know the the puzzle to make this happen is, is uh, as Mario has so correctly said, the, the work that goes into that is tremendous because it, it, there are just so many moving parts. And, uh, and, and, and but that is a single I mean the, the single biggest additional cost in crew change has been the need for owners to, to, to charter uh, aircraft instead of uh, relying on well non-existent um, scheduled flights in many cases and some air corridors that, that um, Marius has described there have been a few cases of this which is very I mean it's very sensible Rotterdam, Manila I mean it's because you, you know Philippines is a major source and supplier of seafarers, so any any main European destination to get into the Philippines and back uh, has been, uh, you know, that that's been very very sensible. And that model also with Singapore. Singapore was in normal days doing twenty thousand crew changes per month. It fell down to ten, uh, and it's now about um, seventy eighty percent. It's now about. Yeah, it's around seventy percent of what it was at, at its peak. 
So, Olav, you said that this is just something, uh, is my words, but how I read you, that this is something we just have to get used to. And, uh, and, um, and, and you also said uh, before the pandemic that you had your scenarios and you were prepared for, for some kind of, uh, of diseases and stuff. But uh, what is your sort of your new outlook? Is it, can I ask, how are you thinking now? What's the, what's the scenarios and strategies? Let me start with the first one. You know, they, you know, when you have an interview, like, you have to learn to live with it. It's kind of one thing. Either you die or you survive. Eh? Kind of, you, you can't give up. So you need to kind of, okay, I'm done. Kind of, let's let's cut on with this, and and try to find a way through it. Because you know, there is there is something on the other side. You know, we can see the the, the, uh, the vaccination program is starting. It's slowly, but it's coming. So we start kind of see some mitigation. It will take time. Now look at it. You know, we plan for twenty twenty one to be just like August twenty twenty. In many ways, we think it will be different, but the effect of the pandemic is still going to be significant. There's no, I can't see any anything kind of taking it away and saying, okay, now we're back to kind of a new normal. We have to plan for it. We are going to, the countries are going to be very reluctant. We even don't know how long the vaccine will last. It's last for six months, it's last for 12 months. I haven't seen any kind of say, we absolutely sure you're going to be. It's going to last for months. So, so that whole scenario, I think, kind of we, we are looking at and we, we expect it to, to, uh, to continue. Um, so that's the first part of it. The, the for 2021, it's going to happen. You know, it's going to be there. It's going to influence all we do. Most of it, at least, in many ways. Um, so the question is, okay, how quickly will we, we, we regain, or will we regain any, 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 any new future, um, new normal, for, for that way? I think... Or I hope that by mid this year we will see kind of some contour of what the future is going to look like. But just just go back again to a little bit of travel. You know, you, you know, I think the you know the world doesn't you know we talk about the leisures and Singapore as being a, a, a tourist destination kind of um, and, and there are many places like that. You know, the, the, there is still Europe is still kind of despite all the travel within Europe, there's no really tourism anymore left. And they're, okay, they're all planning for their summer, summer holidays, going to Spain or to Italy or you know to the Greek island, all that. And you know, so we have the hope, we have the kind of desire to go and to do. But there need to be some uh, some realistic or there need to be some reality in in sense that okay, flights are coming up again. We can move people f- more freely around before things change, and the port need to be open. So for me, it's a um, it's, um, continue where we are and then kind of tackle the challenges. That I don't think there's a strategy, you know, the, the strategy is, of course, to, to, to be close to what's happening, very near to the ground. Make sure you kind of get the best information you can at any point in time and don't never give that up. But there isn't such as, okay, I'm, I'm going to, this is the thing I'm going to do and that's going to stick for the whole year. You know, these are the five things uh, that will help me go through this, um, except kind of being on that. Of course, we need to draw new alliances. That, that's the other part of it. That's not going to be the industry pull together. I think the industry will have to pull it together. What I would hope is that charters could take a little bit more responsibility for helping sorting them out. Because if there is one part of this chain I think could do more, it's the charter. When they charter how they allow the vessel to trade, how they allow the vessel to, to, to do crew changes. The charter, that if, if there's anything I hope for 2021, they kind of Take their, their part of the responsibility. Okay, so I just have to ask the charter. What is it? Cargo owner. Okay. Okay. So, so simple. Cargo owner to take the, a bigger responsibility. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean the cargo owner. The, and the, now the, it's just been talking. The, just that charters the yeah. ship from the owner. So there's an agreement. Uh, if if hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand tons of coal from Australia to to, to uh, China, uh, you've got, for example, BHP or Rio Tinto yeah. with these big Australian names are the charterer, and the owner is the owner, and and there's a contract between these two. And what what Olaf is saying, and with, with which I very much agree, is that there has been quite a lot of criticism of charterers' unwillingness to, in a way, be part of the solution to this. Very often a charter will say during a negotiation to, to fix a ship, as it's called, uh, are you planning any crew changes? Yes, so-and-so. Okay, forget it in that case. We'll go on to another ship. This is We have lots of evidence of this. Now they are, they are saying that, uh, that they understand and, and so on and so forth, and so this clause is no longer in the agreement, but there is still a great reluctance on the, on the part of charters to, to play their role. And they're very aware of it because we, and you know, it's very much been in the shipping press that this is a, a criticism, and I think it's a fair criticism. I can tell you, we, one of our owners the other day uh, finished discharging in West Africa, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and uh, wanted to do a crew change and uh, the charge said nope that's not possible so he went off hire in other words he withdrew the ship from the charterer's use ballasted the ship at his own at the owner's own account to the uk took the crew off put the new crew on that entire leg all costs involved in that would be close to a million dollars if you had bunker fuel Charter hire, etc. That he that he missed about a million dollars. This is just an owner's cost, and and you know it should not be that way. Um, but well, everyone's aware of this problem and it's much discussed. But whether we see any improvement, only time will tell. Yeah, but but why is it? Do they have sort of the luxury to 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 just? Uh, Pick someone else then, or is it uh... very often they yeah. very often they do because yeah. they, although the dry cargo market is a bit better, has perked up a little in in recent weeks, it is still far far below what it was. And and the, the, the bottom line is that for any available cargo uh, firm to be to, that needs a ship in the market, there are almost certainly more several ships competing to to do this business. Because yeah. there is an imbalance inherently of too many ships chasing too little cargo. So yeah, but this is nothing new. This is you know we go throughout history. This is this okay. Is okay. So but but they have been uh, clearly criticised. How are they reacting to the criticism? Now? Well, in many cases they're saying all the right things. Yeah, and uh, and acknowledging it. But but we have to yet see. We have to see concrete action and result is a little early yeah. to, to generalize. There have been, I think, uh, uh, the, the noises are, are positive and, and we just hope that they will participate in this problem because they are a participant. Yeah. So uh, just looking from where we are now, uh, Marius, what do you think will happen with uh, the new mutations and are we now prepared for what's coming? Uh, I, wish, I wish I had a, the, the correct and a straightforward answer on that. I think uh, I think uh, Olaf's take uh, for 2021 is probably uh, very aligned with with our thinking. Is that it will be more of the same. 
uh, I think yeah. in many respects uh, personally I feel that, that we are living more freely now than we did earlier or that we did sort of in the earlier parts of 2020 and I think that that will continue uh, in a way life goes on because uh, there's really no other alternative and you will make the most of it so in many respects it will probably feel better uh, sort of on a personal level uh, but at the same time I think operationally speaking it will be more of the same uh, and I think I think as as Espen um, is touching on as well until you get flights back at the same level as before it's going to continue to be really really tough and I'm not saying it's because of the airlines are, are not doing a good job flying uh, I'm sure they would be more than happy to put more planes on, on their wings but if no one is able to travel because of restrictions, then it doesn't really help having a lot of flights. Well, it'll help a little bit for the seafarers, but then all the airlines will go bankrupt. So, so it's it's it is a chain of events that all needs to come into place for this to sort of for for you to get that circle back working as it needs to work. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good talks these days about how digital tools and everything makes things so much easier. In some industries, you depend on travel. It's such an integral part of, of operating the business. Uh, and in maritime, and especially, not only the seafarers, but also surveyors, inspectors, superintendents, others that needs to travel to visit vessels somewhere in the world to do sort of do maintenance uh, when the vessels are in, in, in a dry docking situation to sort of install a spare part, which is critical for continued operations. There's so many different things which requires travel that I think in, until... Probably until there's a sufficient amount of, of the sort of population in different countries are, are vaccinated and, and countries are able to come together on a sort of a common way of acknowledging vaccines to allow more seamless travel. I think it's going to be more of the same. Yeah. And, and when this is going on, as when you, you Ola mentioned, you either survive or you die. How many, how many uh, companies go bankrupt through this uh, period? Well, there, there have certainly been some, some bankruptcies, but it depends which segment of the market you're talking about, because perversely, in many ways, the container market uh, is booming, absolutely booming. And I look back at my records, I have to find, I have found no evidence of anyone in February or March of 2020 predicting that by Q4 of 2020, that uh, rates would, in some cases, go up fivefold a container between Asia and Europe, um, the rate is five, between five to six times higher than it was at that time. I have not seen anyone predicting that, myself included. In fact, I made the, the prediction that it was going to become dire for a container. And why has it boomed? Because, you know, what I think people didn't quite see coming was that if you can't travel, if you can't go to a restaurant, if you can't do this, you can't do that, you sit in front of your screen and buy things. On Amazon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, uh, TV set starts to move, and fridges, and God knows yeah. what else, and and so it, it, there's just been this um, this amazing consumer boom uh, in both in US and and Europe. So so the the, the container segment had, has had a, a very good run, having had difficult trading conditions for many years. So in a way, it's only I think it's only fair enough that that donors should make a decent return. In dry bulk and tankers, um, tankers had a spectacular first half of last year, and then it completely collapsed, and it is now in very poor state with 
with um, many owners um, really struggling. And dry bulk, as I say, has made a bit of a comeback in, in, in recent times. Bankruptcy is, of course, yes, there have certainly been, been a number and, and, there, and there will be more. But, but it, it, I, I wouldn't say that it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily COVID driven that there have been these bankruptcies. It's just that, you know, market conditions have been poor and, and that has driven, you know, it's commercial realities that mm. has driven uh, some owners who have, you know, acquired ships at the wrong price at the wrong mm. time, too much debt. And not enough cash flow, but this is classic shipping. There's nothing really new in this. But certainly, yes, there have been, there have been, and there will be uh, bankruptcies. LNG, LPG, other other markets are, are doing extremely well. So it's a very very mixed picture. Yeah. You, Marius, I think it was you mentioned that uh, there is sort of a full circle of things that needs to to get fixed to to yeah get into a new normal or a new future um, is there any uh, sort of uh, overgripping hand that can sort of coordinate to fix all this or just does it just have to come back the different parts has to fall back in place uh, by themselves yeah I'm, I'm afraid there's there's there is unfortunately that hand doesn't exist uh, so, so you are reliant on on both countries and industry players in different industries to come together and mutually agree on how to run things because that that's why we were focusing so much in the sort of end of Q1 early Q2 last year on on getting some of these sort of crew corridors up and running one thing was of course to secure supply of crew uh, and to be able to to sign off crew uh, maybe as important but but also because we wanted to create a model and show that there is Possible. It is possible to create a model to do crew changes in a safe manner, also in, in the current environment, as a model for others, hopefully, to replicate. Because, uh, I mean, just setting up between two countries, yes, it helps a little bit, but it's just not even close to enough, right? So, um, so I, think, uh, I think you really need different players to come in on this together. Because if you don't have both the origination country, where the crew is coming from, and the destination country, where the crew is going to sign off, uh, sign on or off, uh, and as well as maybe a transit country in between there. Uh, if you can't get all of those to agree on the same type of regulations, it's going to continue to be difficult. And even within the country, you'll have different regulations on different type of activities, uh, which just adds to the complexity. So I think uh, well, if you have time some, so at some point and you're interested, you could have a look at our website. We'll try to sort of explain the crew change process that we have established for different countries. And because there's really is a different one for every country and to some extent in every port within the country as well. It's really complicated. In many cases, there's a lot of different steps. Um, and uh, under normal circumstances, this is, this is something we do extremely easily extremely easy. I mean, it's it's not as easy as when you're sitting at home behind your laptop booking your sort of summer vacation, but it's it's relatively speaking quite easy. Uh, and now it's almost like a science. Uh, and you you involve so many more parties than you would normally do. I mean, normally, I mean, a lot of sort of OLAV's employees, when they, when they then go to their agent for help, then the agent will more or less just deal with it and things will you get some information and then it's fine. Now you need much more involvement from for all parties to make things happen, uh, which is just basically just increases the workload tremendously. 
What is the address, uh, your webpage? Where can people go to uh, get this? Billhamson.com. Billhamson.com. And that is easily accessible there? I think if you scroll down to the bottom of the first page, you will find links to both a COVID testing map, where you can find all the real testing availability in all different countries and the process for that. You will also find an overview of the crew change processes and procedures for different ports and countries. And you will also see the map with the general restrictions, not only crew related, but also restrictions on vessels and type of vessels, which vessels can go where and what you need to know and think about. Yeah. We will also write that in the, in the blog post for the for the podcast so that so that can be useful. Uh, Ola, do you disagree a little with Marius when he says that uh, digitalization is maybe uh, yeah he he doesn't think so much of it. I, I have read something where you are sort of highlighting more maybe the the learning parts or or yeah maybe some positives that we can take away from it also. In, okay, I don't disagree with him. In a sense, the process we are turning the process around. We are digitalizing more of the processes, but you never get the baby away from the people, the actual people going on board. You never get, you know, no, no never. That's wrong. As it's structured today, as the whole industry, there are need for people to go on board. Uh, that being our own people's, uh, the, the, the superintendent going, it be, can be cargo, it can be bunkering, but we see there's something else around that. You know, to leave that kind of digitalization away, like but you. It's getting more creative, and can we can we do this without with less people interacting? Kind of that's the first thing that kind of we see is happening. You know, a bunker operation, a cargo operation, can that be done with less people less people attending and together? You know, it's always going to be in a lot of you know. So so I think that's the that is one part of it that we see that those operations goes for a better word better. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're more creative in finding solutions without because. What what is really about you know you're leaving aside it is it's to avoid getting COVID on board. That is the, that is the headline from every day. We don't want any vessel with COVID on board. How do you do that? The one thing is the seafarers, and that, that that's an important part of it. But it starts with we can't get COVID on board because never even stops. There's no doubt about it. So protect the health of the seafarer. Those who's coming on board, those who are on board, those who's coming on board, and those who are signing off. That's what the, that's what this whole chain is all about. And how do we do that without jeopardizing? At the same time, they throw up all kind of spanners in, in the work and roadblocks for us to do it. That's what it feels like sitting on the side. But we are really looking at everything. Can we get this done without anybody being affected? That's what you're looking at. And that's the reality of it. And if the, the side of that is, can we do it at enough number of places, locations, so we don't have overruns of crew that we, we can leave them on time and all that. But it starts with no COVID anymore. And that's what we plan for every single day. And that's kind of that means less human interaction, more social distancing, more measures in place, not only for the crew change, but how we operate the whole vessel, how we put the vessel on alert when they're going into port. You know, we've seen in Singapore uh, the, the, the pilot got it, you know, and, and, the, and the marine survey, you know. And I'm not, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised in the way that they got it, but that means that you know, those vessels hasn't kind of been able to, and I, I know it's different, but that's back again to the. I think you said this new mutation of the, the virus is okay. Are they more contagious or not, or is it just to get people get more relaxed? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, the mutation is there. The, the challenge with the mutation itself is that people get or countries get closing their borders. The effect of it is that they close the border. That means things get more difficult. So now I, you know the digitalization is going to help us in many ways, but it will never take away the need for human interaction. 
So we do video, call, you know, the video conferences with the officers and crew. We have you know, crew conferences and we do, you know, we do remote to help them and assist them from makers and all that. But at some point in time, someone needs to go more. And that is actually a critical point because if that person that comes on board takes the virus with them, then they have a problem right? if it's exactly. infected. So, so there are many aspects of this we have learned over time that kind of how do we run this without having an infection? When you get one, you have a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> to, to clear and, you know, and I think, you know, I'm sure you know you. So, so I think if, if you focus on all these items, yes, digitalization, we're going to get new processes, better processes, different processes. But if you keep the fact that it is about not that we're keeping the, the virus away from the vessel, not getting on board, and how we also at the same time limit the human interaction across. Because when you are on board and sailing at sea for 14 days and you don't, everybody's healthy, and not, at least we know we don't have COVID. So every every interaction is kind of when it increases the the, the, the chances of, of getting it. Yeah. So 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 there are, there are elements of that as well, kind of in, in the way how we think and, and work, and that that does and that doesn't go away by digitalizing the, the, the So I think the, the the part of that is yes, we have new process improvement, we find new ways, and I'm sure one of the fallout of this when we're looking a couple of years ahead is that we have a lot a lot of new tools and ways to work and do, but we don't have them all now, but we will as we move forward. Remember, the ship is, some of this is built 15, 20 years ago. So this, the technology on board is not the same as those delivered yesterday. For a better word. And then, by the way, there's not that many delivered now. So that's a good part, maybe, <laughs> getting the rates up. <laughs> I think one, one, one important point in terms of looking ahead and solutions and so on is something we've pressed for very, very much, which is prioritizing seafarers for the vaccine. You know, as an absolute priority, and all our member associations are domestically pushing this one as well. And we are trying to take it to the IMO and UN, etc., etc. Are you succeeding? I think the jury is still out. Let's put it that way. It, it's it's we, we we are trying very very hard at very at many levels yeah. because it's a you know in a way like airline crew or frontline workers in hospitals and so on. Society relies on seafarers. It's just that society is not very well aware of it because seafarers are out of sight and out of mind. But the day that you your products are not available and that's on that supermarket shelf any longer because there's been a hiccup in the supply chain, which is largely shipping, then suddenly people will become more aware of it. But the average person in the public is not aware of how well this system supply chains functions just in time deliveries you know it's a highly efficient network a, a chain of events be it through rail buses air ships you know the connection from factory to consumer is quite amazing it's very very sophisticated but the day that suddenly the ship aspect or the, the shipping link of that chain goes that's really going to be a problem and so Apart from the moral aspect and apart from the human aspect of seafarers, it, it is in everybody's interest that they are front, you know, that they are ahead of the queue in vaccinations because it, that will make a big difference. Yeah, yeah cross fingers that that will uh, succeed. We are going to round uh, up now, but, but I, I said that I would ask you some personal questions. And I think that this conversation also have um yeah shown that that there is some kind of affinity some some kind of love almost uh, for the 
for the shipping. Um, Espen, you have been in this business. You told us that this September you have been in this business for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did it start and have you always been in shipping? Uh, I've always been in shipping because yeah. I, I fell in love with the sea as a child in Denmark. I used to stand in, uh, down in the harbor and look out and I wanted to go sailing and for various reasons it was never possible. So when we moved to Canada when I was 12 years old, my stepfather was a sailor and he and I bonded through sailing. He had a beautiful old uh, Swedish design wooden 48 foot yawl as it was then, beautiful boat. And um, you know, I took dinghy courses and I got into sailing and he said to me very early on, you're going to be in shipping because you love the sea and you've got some little bit of business acumen, hopefully. <laughs> so I, I, he started and he organized um, a you know, program for me whereby uh, as a 17-year-old I went to, to sea on a German ship from the west coast of uh, Canada, Vancouver, down the west coast across, through the Pacific and to Australia and New Zealand over two and a half months. And that was sort of a practical. Then I worked in Newcastle in, in UK. I was in London the year that uh, the Suez Canal closed, 1967, which was the birth of the VLCC. I was too young and stupid to <laughs> understand the implications of the Suez closing, but it was in shipping terms a historical event. So, I, I, and and I have uh, I I love shipping. I think it's just the most brilliant industry because it's meaningful and, and it's useful. And uh, I've met many fantastic people through my many years in it and uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. Maurice, you're a sociologist and an expert on big numbers and works in different uh, industries but uh, and been in shipping for five, five six years? Yes. Yes. Five, have you fallen in love as well? Yeah, yes, I have. But I think my love started prior to me joining, actually, quite some time back uh, already early in my university days and maybe even sooner because, or earlier because I've always had a, an attraction to the sea uh, from being a child. And uh, I was very close to actually joining one of the container operators already after my bachelor's degree. Uh, but for various reasons, it didn't happen. And I went on to my master's and decided to complete my studies. So, so I think when I eventually joined the industry 10 years into my career, it, it almost felt a little bit like coming home. And it is a very special industry because I think the human interaction in the industry and the bonding between people across companies is, is very unique. Uh, there's the, the passion for what people do is extremely unique. Uh, and I've worked in a lot of different industries also as a consultant before. So I, I feel I have a base to sort of compare from and I, I think I think as, as Espen is mentioning it's a very sort of inspiring industry to work for because it's such an important part of how things work on a daily basis I mean one thing is the supply of food and everything but I mean the houses we live in everything almost in almost every country is a result of someone being able to move all of those commodities uh, around and it's it's is really quite miraculous how it's how seamlessly and smooth this normally happens um, very 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 interesting industry it actually the crisis now gives a perspective on how seamless uh, it is yeah. normally I would say. I yeah. mean, just imagine. I think. I think people has experienced in this in almost every country now. But yeah. I recall in Singapore back in in sort of 
end of Q1, early Q2, when you would go to the grocery stores and you would find half of the shelves empty. Yeah. It's because it was really difficult to move, both to get things produced and then secondly to, to move uh, those goods uh, between countries. Because no country is self-sustained with everything they need or even if they are, they still have a sort of a trading pattern uh, and, and agreements that makes them basically buy and sell across different countries because of bilateral agreements. So, so there, there's literally probably almost no country that, that isn't dependent on trading uh, with other countries. And then you need basically vessels to operate on a continuous basis. So, Olaf, your uh, relationship to this sea and the shipping? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I'm born on an island. You know, so I'm born by the sea. Which island? Uh, it's um, an island on the west coast of Norway, it's Norway and outside Norway. The, the whole point about kind of being born by an island, you know, you, you get, you know, because I was on boat and so my, my, my grandfather was a fisherman, has a couple of boats, my father was a fisherman, my, my gra- you know, both my grandfather and all, all that. And I, you know, you, you, you grow up in the shipping industry, kind of the shipbuilding and all that. So I, but I realized very early that I was horrible seasick. I'm so motion sick, I can't see anything move. You know, it's really bad. And I, and I kind of grow in this place and says, you know, I, I can't go. I, you know, I can't leave. And I see at the shipyard and the building and the vessels and the canals. I actually worked for a practice for a year at the shipyard. Just kind of get the feel of it. But anyway, I could not be on those. So I decided to do on the, on the, and that's what kind of made the choice of becoming a naval architect. And from there on, kind of being involved. But it comes from being, being there, seeing the vessel coming and going and, and having kind of in the family as well. Travel. Uh, both on, on, on the fishing was kind of my, my, my grandfather was uh, in the whaling industry down in the, in the South Atlantic in the, in the oh, 50s right. and 60s, you know. So, so um, it's kind of there is a little bit of a history in there, uh, and that drags you somewhere. And okay, but it looks looks fun, looks good. And and over the time, I've been in and out. You know, I've been working in the oil and gas industry, I've been working a little bit with testing inspection certification. But kind of so all the roots has been kind of in the, in the, the marine and shipping side. And even when I worked with oil and gas, was also on the inside more or less of it. Um, and and the, it's a little bit like a family. You move around and you meet the same. You don't meet the same people. You meet new people all the time, but they have different elements of, you know, you can see the, you can, you can be, you can, like uh, me as a naval architect, you know, you're starting up kind of having interest of the, the whole designing the, the chain. You know, you're looking at the entire chain, not only designing the vessels, but basically how it fit into a transportation chain, what kind of... Uh, what kind of need is going to fulfill and kind of design. So you get into kind of thinking about how this whole thing works. And then you start moving around and find your part of it. But you see kind of the way you interact with your whole chain is fantastic. And it gives you a feeling. I think it's, I met a friend, I met a friend, I have a friend, kind of, he, he worked for, for Intel for a while. And then, and then, and then I said, you know, I, I said, why do, you, why do you quit? I said, you know, I couldn't really tell my kids what I was doing. You know, making this little, you know, it was so hard <laughs> to tell my five-year-olds all that I was doing. So I kind of, I left it and started with motor industry. At least I can tell them I make cars, you know. <laughs> My whole point is, is it's, it's about, also about, you know, you can explain, you can show where you are and you want to work, you know, that, that makes, makes, I think it makes it kind of um, rewarding in a way yeah. to see how you can be part of that. And yes, we can, we are a small family. We're not a, I think on the worldwide scale, we're not really a big industry. But on the same side, we, it's a really important part. And, and, and it is an, an industry that has this, ability to adapt. We may not kind of that forward lean when it comes to adapting technology. 
if you adapt it, adapting on a commercial terms, how are we going to move? How are we going to do new demands coming up? How are we going to solve them for the world? And that's been fascinating, and that's still happening as we're speaking today. You know, you know, it's it's all about you know, decarbonization, new energy sources. We have to, we have to find a solution to it. And I know the industry is going to be it, it's going to be, it's getting a grip on it. I mean, I don't think we have the speed that we need yet. The there has to come more speed into it. Has to more will to drive. And the willingness to kind of be the first one taking the, the, the deep into the step into the deep water, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But that makes it, you know, that that change has been there all the time. And then we can complain or not complain, kind of say when Aframax looked at an Aframax today that it looked 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. The hold on the, the, the cargo carrying, but all that has to happen around it, the whole that transportation chain. All that has to happen within shipping for us to becoming more efficient, aligned with the rest of the world. So I'm, you know, that kind of drive for and see that they're not really to change, see that there is, there is a, a there is to take on the new challenges, that's been my drive to being, I mean, that's continued for the last 25, 30 years when, when we start. You know, has there been ups and downs? Yes, sure. You know, are there over, oversupply? Yes, sure. Happens. Are there, are there good times? Yes, there are. Are there far between? It seems like if you talk to everybody, it's, you know, it's like, it's like when you go and talk to a fisherman, how was the catch today? Ah, you know, it's a little bit like this. Everybody has that kind of slide until it's really booming. And then, and then they tell you that they kind of a month or three later that they had a fantastic time. And then kind of, you, but that's, that's not everybody should follow. I think the whole idea about this, the, the, the way it's, it's interwoven into the, the trading pattern of the world. Maybe we should let that be the, the last uh, wisdom, actually, of this conversation, that uh, there is a willingness to change. And uh, they think that in the end we'll uh, we'll make a happy ending or a happy new normal to uh, to this uh, topic. Thank you again to uh, Vice President Commercial in Williamson Ship Agency, Marius Johansson, uh, President of International Chamber uh, of Shipping, uh, Mr. Espen Paulsen, and uh, CEO at Toma, uh, Mr. Ola Nuken. Thanks very much.